Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> I'm one of those who uh, has mixed feelings on Mother's Day. Um, I uh, honor and, and I'm so thankful for Lisa, who is just an incredible mother to our children. Today I miss my mom, who went home to be with the Lord when she was only 61. And uh, I also, over these years, uh, we have prayed, we have, we have fasted, we have sought the Lord for our daughter to be able to have children. Our daughter is an amazing uh, woman. Uh, she's a children's pastor down in Atlanta. She's so good with kids. Lisa and I both say she's a better parent than we ever were, and yet she has not been able to have a child. And so she went the route of fostering children in need, and I, I made this commitment that I wasn't going to get close to any of them. You know, I wasn't going to fall in love with them. I was going to be nice to them. And every one of them has melted my heart. And, uh, and it has been so painful as the court has taken them away or uh, taken them and put them in unsafe situations. And we've been through such a roller coaster, such an up and down. And just this week we had incredible news that the first uh, step, the first papers in adoption have taken place and one of the little girls that, that we have fallen in love with who's been with Anna and, and Brian for about a year and she calls me Pop Pop. <laughs> so um, this morning this has incredible relevance because we're talking about the faithfulness of God. And the faithfulness of God is not just a concept, but it is something that is tested when life doesn't go the way you expect. It is tested when the circumstances of your life do not fit what you have expected the circumstances to be. Especially when I think about what an incredible woman, what an incredible uh, daughter, what an incredible mom my daughter would make, and yet she has lived many, many years just hoping for a child and not seeing that prayer answered. And, and only through adoption is, is it seeming to take place. And in the midst of that, to hold on to the promises of God and the faithfulness of God. So today, this is what it's about. Is we, we continue in our journey to know God it is to know him as trustworthy even when the world seems to be falling apart. To know him as reliable even though our eyes cannot see what the end is. And so the passage that I want us to look at is a passage where a New Testament writer takes an Old Testament uh, narrative and interprets it for us and, and helps us to understand the work of Christ, even as God was revealing himself in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 6. It's a powerful passage. It's, some, it's profound. You have to think through it with me. It's deep. But we're going to read this out loud together. I like it when you read God's word with me. So let's read out loud. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear... He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly 
to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So everyone that I ever talk to who has some kind of a church background or who has some kind of confession as being a Christian, every single person agrees with the concept of the faithfulness of God. And for many of us who are older Christians, probably one of our favorite hymns of all time is Great is Thy Faithfulness. You know, morning by morning new mercies I see, all that I have needed you have provided. And uh, it's even more powerful because it's in the thee and thy kind of thing, you know. So it's got to be true. Uh, but, but what I want to talk about today is really not the concept of faithfulness, but the default setting in your heart regarding his faithfulness. You see, what you trust and what you consider to be trustworthy is all up to you. The, the area of your heart that has, in a way, a sense of autonomy is the deepest part of you that says, this is what I trust. This is what I'm committed to. It is like a default setting. It's your go-to practice. I remember being at the altar, praying with numerous people over the years who come to a worship service, who are passionate about the Lord, who experience powerfully the Holy Spirit, but at the altar they're coming because either they're, they're single and because they have no partner in their life, they come in guilt and they come in shame because they can't trust God with their sexuality and they can't trust God with sexual fulfillment and so they just have gone somewhere and, and allowed someone else to say they're beautiful or they're handsome or they're desired or whatever it is. And in those moments, in those default setting moments, they didn't trust God, they trusted their desires. And instead of trusting in the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God, they trusted in sexual immorality. The same has happened with people who have come to me and said, my marriage is terrible. My spouse doesn't meet my needs. And I say, what have you done? I've hooked up with somebody in my office. I've hooked up with somebody at school. And what they're saying, you see, is I can't trust the faithfulness of God. I have to trust my own body. I have to trust my own desires. I, I, you see, it doesn't matter what you say with your lips if your life betrays what you say you believe. See, whatever you trust is a default thing. Trust is actually, it's, it's your automatic response to the danger or to challenges or to loneliness or to hurt or to challenges like 
you got to get something done on time. What happens is many of us, what we actually trust in our default setting is we trust our anger. You know, I've, I've preached all over America, and one of the most common things all over the United States is bitter and unforgiving Christians. Some people have estimated that over 85% of the church are bitter and unforgiving. So what are you trusting in? I'm trusting in my anger to protect me. I'm trusting in my bitterness to keep me safe. I'm trusting in my unforgiveness so that those people can't hurt me anymore. Although the stupid thing about that is unforgiveness is you hurting yourself over and over and over and over and over again. There are many people, I, I can't tell you how the numbers of people who live on the basis of anxiety. The problem for most people with anxiety is anxiety is a superpower. You can clean your house like you're, the, you're Mr. Clean when you have anxiety. You can get your deadlines done when you have anxiety. It gives you adrenaline. It gives you clarity. It gives you all kinds of stuff. But it's also it is, it's, it's a slave master fear. It is the fear that you will fail, the fear that other people won't value you or respect you. It's the fear that somehow you've got to have this kind of superpower to live this life. And what toll it takes, anxiety takes, and fear takes, it's not ever, friends, it's limiting. It is not, it is not empowering. Anxiety is the language of hell. It lets you feel the pain of a future that will never happen. Anxiety steals your strength for tomorrow so that somehow you can get what you need done today. But it never prepares you for the future. You understand, this all goes back to the beginning. When God put us in a garden and he put our forefathers in a garden, he said, you can eat of all the other trees. You can, you can experience and and have all of the other things that are in this garden. But this one tree I prohibit. This one tree you may not eat of. And if you look in the text, you realize that's the only tree that interested them at that point. Which, if you think about it, that's exactly how we are. You tell me I can't have something, it's the only thing I'm interested in. Or you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to prove that I can do it just so you, you, you'll be, you know, shown as foolish or whatever. So they stand there, they're standing there, and they're given this amazing lie. And it's a lie that holds with us to this day. And it's this lie. If I can't have this one thing, then I can't really have anything. If he won't let me have this, then he's not going to let me have anything that matters to me. And Satan came in the midst of that struggle, and he said this to them. You need to divorce your spirit from your body. You need your body to be the master over your spirit, not your spirit be master over your body. And they decided that they would live by what they could see. They would live by what they, they wanted, what they felt, what they lusted after. They would live by their own decision. They would decide what was good and what was evil. And in that moment, all of us fell. And we all became like that. And the, the whole of our life is basically the default setting where the trust mechanism has broken down in our hearts is this. 
We have lived by the appetites of our body mastering our spirit. And we have not believed, even as Christians, we have not believed that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind so that we can rule our bodies and master our bodies by our spirits. You will not be free. You will not be fully yourself. You will not reach the awesome destiny that you have as a person until your spirit masters your body. But as long as the default setting is when you're hurt, you're going to go to anger. When there's a demand on you, when there's a challenge or a threat, you immediately go to fear or anxiety. When you're hurting and you're lonely and you're all, you know, sense nobody wants me, I have no true glory, I have no true worth, and you go and you unite yourself to somebody else with whom you have no covenant, then you are saying, God, you are not trustworthy. I am trustworthy. And what the writer of of this book of Hebrews is trying to say to you is there is only one who is faithful. There is only one who is trustworthy. Now, he's also saying you can trust him. Now, one of the things I want you to understand is we're not talking about the huge tragedies of life. Of course, you need to trust God, but most of us actually, we have less trouble trusting God in the big things. But look what Shakespeare, how he described life. He said, each morn, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. It's beautiful English prose, but painful. Because he's saying every single day of our life, there are new widows made. Every day of our life, new orphans are created. And every day, sorrows of this earth are striking heaven. We live, friends, in little adversities that mire us and frustrate us. It's really often the little things. I... I, I, I had this experience on Friday night. I hear this scream from Lisa's closet. <laughs> and then my name, Mike! And, she, and she's, she's almost, you know, she's in tears because she's been fixing up, you know, her spring, summer clothes, get the winter clothes out because there's only so much space, getting them out. And all of them came tumbling down on her. And all of them, you know, and the shoes, she, we were going out, and the shoes she needed were under the pile, the whole pile. Now, it's not a huge thing, but you know there are things like that that when it happens and you need to get dressed and you need to go forward, it just feels like the whole world's against you. And those are the ones that just give you, you just go, I give up. I mean, what is it here at church? It's, it's so funny. The only time the copy machine breaks are on the weekends when we're trying to get a brochure done or something and nothing's working, no toner, no nothing. And it's the weekend, so you can't get any. I, it's, these, it's these little things. It's not the life-shattering things. It's these you know, little things that bring us into discouragement and depression. So what does the writer of Hebrews say when, I, when we're dealing with reality, when we're dealing with real life? There's three things I want to impress on you today. The first is, you must trust God. Not just in the big things, but when the closet implodes. You must trust God. And then secondly, the writer of Hebrews says this, you can 
trust God. You. It's possible for you to become a man or a woman of deep trust because the only person in charge of what you trust is you. You are the decider of what you value. You are the one who decides, these are my default settings. Nobody else, nobody else has control over that. Only you. And then the third thing is, how do I begin to trust in a deeper and deeper way? So the first one I want to look at is, is really this idea that you must trust God. It's absolutely necessary for your life. And, and so in verse 19, he, he gives us a picture, he gives us an image that helps us understand the, the need for trust, and he calls it that your trust in God becomes an anchor for your soul, a sure and a certain anchor for your soul. And what he's saying there is every single one of us absolutely needs an anchor for our soul. We need that. We want that. We can't live without it. Now, there are certain things that I know about anchors. And uh, I, I, I learned them because I grew up in the bayous of Louisiana. I grew up in the bayous of, of the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. And my, my family were fishermen. And we were, we were always out in boats when I was a little kid. And the, uh, these areas where we fished, you would find these spots and you just start killing it. You'd catch a hundred fish at a time. And so what you want to do is you don't want to lose that spot. You don't, want to, you don't want the current to take you away from that spot. You don't want the wind to blow you on top of where the fish were. And so what we would do is we would, we would sink the anchor and we would stay in that spot and we'd just keep fishing until till we had so many fish we could feed the whole family. And so the anchor was essential because without it, the water moved and, and the boat moved and you would lose your place. But here's, here's the two things I know about the anchor. One is the anchor has to be tied to you. The anchor has to be committed and bound to you or it's worthless. I remember one time my uncle, we got to the spot and my uncle threw the anchor in and it wasn't tied to the boat. <laughs> and Louisiana Bayou water is black as night and you have no idea what's under the surface. That anchor was gone. We never saw it again. <laughs> never saw it again. So the anchor was useless because it wasn't tied to us. It wasn't bound to us. So the anchor has to be bound. It has to be committed. It has to be tied to you. Secondly, the anchor has to go to a realm that you cannot get to on your own. It has to go to some place beyond you. But it also, it cannot be anchored in the water because the water is the thing you're anchoring against. So you have to have an anchor that finds a rock or finds bedrock or finds something immovable that the water cannot affect. Or else you have no anchors or it's a useless anchor. The picture that the writer is trying to get to, to you and to me is that you need an anchor that's committed to you that is bound to you through thick and through thin, is, is for you personally. And the only one who's really that anchor for your soul is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. There is nobody else who is more bound to you than Him. Not your family, not your friends. Your friends will betray you. Your family will let you down. But He is always faithful. Even good marriages, we fail each other. 
Even good friendships, we fail to keep our promises to each other. Or we do not keep our expectations with each other. But Jesus, who needs nothing from you, but has everything to give to you, knows exactly who you are and what you need, and He has bound His life to your life. As long as He lives, you will live. And He is the resurrection and the life. But secondly, He is also beyond the water. You see, the water is a picture of your life. Life is like a current. It's constantly moving. Wherever you are today, you will not be there tomorrow. Just like being in a river or being in a, in a, in a windstorm. You cannot stay in the same place. You cannot have certainty without an anchor. And so Jesus exists in a realm beyond us. He exists in eternity. Where you are limited, He is limitless. He changes not. He is not affected by the water of your life. He is beyond your circumstances. Whatever the current does, whatever the wind is doing, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can put your trust in Him. You see, what you have to begin to realize is that any other anchor just doesn't work. It isn't enough for you. I like this show called The Prairie Home Companion. And there's a humorist on there. He's in trouble now, but he's still a funny guy. His name is Garrison Keeler. And he has this thing called Lake Wobegon Days. And he, and he tells these funny stories. Well, one of the stories he told was funny, but it was also kind of, kind of poignant. He said he was watching this thing, this documentary called The Life of a Doctor, or Life in uh, Doctor's Lives and stuff like that. And he's watching this documentary, and the doctors are doing their rounds and they're reviewing their patients, and they, they say something like this, well, the patient in 340 died this morning. And then they move on and they go in the patient in room 341 and 342 and, they, and, and he's flabbergasted by it. He goes, they didn't even stop and cry about the patient who died in 340. He's saying, I always hoped that on the day I died, my doctor would at least have to take a half day off <laughs> just to get over the fact that I have passed. And he said it was just so, it was so striking to him that they spoke of this person's death that they had been caring for, and then they moved right on to the next one as if it didn't matter at all. And there was a recognition in his mind how quickly we get over those who have been with us. How fast we move on when they have passed on. And it's, it, it's hard when we realize that. It's almost like when you lose someone near and dear to you, most of your friends are saying, you need to get on. You need to get over this. You need to, you know, you need to get on with your life for the kind of words that we say. And, and Garrison Keel is kind of funny. He's there saying, I don't want you to get over this. I want you to cry for days. I want you to take days off, not be able to do anything because I'm gone. But that's how life goes, doesn't it? It moves on. It's amazing how quickly the pain subsides. And we get on you know, with life without that person. But the flip side of that is also this part of it, and that is when I'm gone, when you're gone, we're no longer there for the people we love. Whatever kind of rock we were for them, whatever kind of anchor for them that we might have been in terms of financially or love or support or wisdom or whatever it might be is no longer there in their life. Why am I saying that? 
I'm saying that because if your anchor is not outside the water, you have no anchor. You have no anchor. And you desperately, I desperately, we cannot live this life without a sure and certain anchor for our souls. So trusting God then is possible. It's, it's necessary. It's, you, it's a must of your life. But it's also a, a possibility that you can really trust God in a deep way. And, and, and in some ways it, it helps if you realize there's really no other good alternative. I mean, I can't convince you of the existence of God, but I can show you that without Him, there's no other good alternative. For example, what we're saying here is we have an anchor in God that exists outside of this realm. So He is over and above. He is beyond what you're going through. And He can see the end from the beginning. He is in eternity. He is infinite. He has no limitations. Man, that's a life outside of ours and still connected to us. Because what happens is you only have three alternatives of what you're going to trust. So I'm trying to put together for you and put forth for you the, the argument that trusting God is really the only alternative. But people do choose to trust other people. And they put their anchor in someone else. And when that happens... When you make somebody else ultimate in your life, when you give them the place of the anchor of your soul, they will always disappoint you. Because they can't be the anchor because they need an anchor themselves. Many people who have bad marriages, it's not because they're bad people. It's because they have expected from their spouse what only an anchor outside of the water can give them. As a matter of fact, the Bible is really clear. It says over and over again that Jesus is the rock. I love the verse where it says, When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock, to the rock that is higher than I. That's the only anchor that works. Even when Moses, the great leader of God's people, when he wanted to see the glory of God, God said, you can't look at my glory in, 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 your, in your face or you'll die. And he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock. It's a picture of Jesus. Of being in the rock that hides you, the rock that, that defends you, that, that, the rock that keeps you secure and keeps you safe. But you see... Even in the best of relationships, even with the best friends, we hurt each other. The closer you are to somebody else, the more you see their flaws, the more you see their brokenness. No one has ever hurt Lisa more than I have. I don't say that except with, with deep repentance in that. Because of my own self-centeredness and my own selfishness and my my hunger for my own way instead of being a loving, giving husband. Jesus doesn't need anything from me. And He has everything to give to me. So that when I am overwhelmed, He's not overwhelmed. Whereas when I go to someone else who's in the same water with me, they're as overwhelmed as I am. Are you tracking with me in this? The Bible's really clear on this, and it says 
eventually what will happen, particularly as you get older, you stop trusting everybody. And you start hardening yourself. Matter of fact, in Proverbs, the fool is not somebody who's foolish. The fool is somebody who's come to the place to say, I need no one else. I only need myself. Well, we had one such fool come to church here. And uh, the first day he was here, he sought me out. And he said to me, I just want you to know nobody trusts God, nobody trusts God more than I do. Well, I have a bit of discernment. I realized at that moment, this guy's a nut. I mean, all you have to, I, I mean, all you have to do is listen to somebody say, nobody trusts God more than I do. Anybody that actually trusts God deeply would never say that. You'd be humbled by the very presence of God. You're trusting Him because you know He is so great and you are not. And you would not praise your trust. That, that was enough. But then He went on and He said, and I don't trust anybody else. What He's saying is He so hardened His heart and he had allowed himself to be so wounded and hurt that he had stayed in an emotional state of childishness, in an immaturity. You see, what do, what do children do? They either all trust or no trust. They're either, I hate you, mommy, or I love you, mommy. Everything is all or nothing. Once you get to adulthood, you should have put away those childish things. And you realize that everybody you love has flaws. There are places they can be trusted. There are places they cannot be trusted. And you need to be wise enough to trust them where they're trustworthy and not trust them where they are. But what happens is when you've been hurt enough and you've built up your pride enough, eventually you say, I can't trust anybody but me, which makes you less than a human being. Because you will never be close to anyone you cannot trust. Trust is the default setting. Trust is a defensive setting. Trust makes it to where you're going to either be near somebody. See, you can serve someone, you can minister to someone you do not trust, but they will never be your friend. They will never be intimate with you. And the issue with many of us is that even in some of our closest family relations, we are no longer able to trust. So we are no longer close. And all that's left is the bond of obligation. But if you have gotten to the place where you say, I cannot trust anybody, one, you're making an audacious statement that you actually have the ability to judge whether people are trustworthy or not. But you've also judged them all to be less than you, which in and of itself makes you less than a human. You see, what I'm trying to drive home to you today is you really have three choices. Trust yourself which means hardness, less than humanity. Trust others, which will betray you, which will disappoint you and discourage you. Or trust in God, who lives outside the realm of this water and who alone is the rock that is higher than you. The Bible says it this way. You and I, like like all human beings, our days are like grass. We flourish like a flower of the field, but when the wind passes over it, it is gone, and its place knows it no more. That is the natural human reaction, our life. But here's what Psalm 103 says. I, the Lord, change... I mean, I'm sorry, Malachi 3. 
I, the Lord, change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. What is he saying there? He's saying, if you are untethered, if you have no anchor, then you're nothing but a flower of the field and you will pass away. But if you are bound to the Lord and the Lord is bound to you, He changes not. And even if the floods come, even if the wind comes, whatever comes, you will not be consumed because He is outside of the water. He's the anchor of the soul. It's a beautiful picture, but it's also very practical. And the reason he wanted us to grasp this is because he wanted us to understand that the promises, promises he made to Abraham were for us. In Galatians 3, it says that even to us who are Gentiles, it said all the promises of Abraham belong to the sons and daughters of faith. Curse has been broken. Promises and blessings are here. So, it's possible to become a trustworthy person and to be a person who trusts God in a deep way. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, Abraham is our example. Now, some of you might say, well, well Abraham is an awfully good guy. He's the father of, of the faith. He's the father of nations. Anytime God identifies himself in the Old Testament, he identifies himself as God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the truth is, Abraham was a jerk. He had the same inner jerkiness that you have. <laughs> Only three of you are laughing. That's all. You haven't realized this? Uh, Listen, he was, not some, he was not some great, honorable, pure kind of guy. He got, when he was 75 years old, he got the promise that his descendants would number more than the stars, they would be more than the sands of the earth. And what did he do with that promise? Well, he had to go wander... And he had to wait. God gave him the promise for his security, but he didn't give him a home for security. God gave him the promise for his, for his prosperity and for his future, but he didn't give him any place to settle. He had to wander. He had to wait. And as Abraham was wandering, his default setting was not to trust God. The first challenge that came he said to his wife, Sarah, this guy's going to kill me. Play like you're my sister. Which he re she really was kind of his sister. It was sort of a down south kind of thing. I was going to say Kentucky, but Gabe might get me for that. So he, he lies. He lies. And here's what a lie says. God, you can't save me. I have to save myself. Every time you lie to defend yourself, every time you lie, you're saving yourself and you're saying, I'm my own Savior. I'm a better Savior than you are. Because you can't defend a lie with the truth. You can only defend a lie with another lie. And it's the truth that sets you free. But that wasn't all. It took 25 years for the fulfillment of the promise so Abraham got tired of waiting so he decided, and Sarah decided, they would take care of this themselves. I mean, think about it. When God made the promise, Abraham's 75 years old, Sarah's 65, already beyond childbearing years. Now, in some ways, I think they could say, well, we could trust God for this at 65. But 25 years later, Abraham's 100 years old, and Sarah's 90. There was no Viagra in those days. 
I mean, now you're like, how, how is this even going to take place? You're saying, I'm going to have all these descendants, I'm going to have this blessing, but I have nothing. So at one point they decide, we're going to help God out, and they take the maid, and she has sex with Abraham, and she gets pregnant, and guess who's, conceived, guess who's born? Well, Ishmael, the father of Muhammad, the father of the Arab nations, so instead of fixing the problem, he created a few more problems. Because when he's your own savior, all you do is make more problems for yourself. So don't think that because Abraham became the great man of God that he started as a great man of God. It took him 25 years of journey. It took him 25 years to learn. And... 25 years later, God comes back after having made this promise at 75. Now Abraham's 100 years old. And you can understand why Abraham would say, okay, God, you made this promise, but how do I know that it's true? What an audacious thing to say. He's challenging the mighty God. And God is probably speaking to him through the cloud, through thunder, through a voice that would scare the daylights out of most of us. But he challenges him. He says, all right, you were here 25 years ago. You're back again. So tell me, how do I know that this is true? God can handle challenges, friends. So God says this, I'm going to make an oath with you. Now when God made an oath, when anybody in those days, when they made an oath, there was blood. And so what, what happened is, Abraham had to go and get these animals and cut them in half. So it was messy, it was bloody. And then he had to arrange them in a certain way. And when you made an oath, you walked through the animals and basically you said, if I don't do what I promise, then may it be to me as it was to these animals. If I don't keep my word, then whatever happened to these animals, I, I'm going to receive that in myself. But here's what happened. God would not let Abraham make the oath. God would not allow Abraham to take the curse. And what God did is he passed through making an oath, not only on Abraham's behalf, but on your behalf. And as he passed through, he said to the pieces of the animals that were cut and the blood that was flowing, and he said, may it be to me even if they do not keep these promises. And Abraham was utterly staggered by this. But even then, he did not know what it would cost God to keep that promise. And what we have in the book of Hebrews is so powerful. It's basically, we're understanding this. God had no one greater to swear by. So he swore by himself. And we've been looking at the character of God. And this, this is all foundational for you understanding God. God is always God. His attributes are always his nature, and his nature is always his attributes. Who he is cannot be denied. It is impossible for God to lie. So when he makes a promise, it's already reality. It is already trustworthy. You and I may ask the question, which would be right to ask, yeah, I believe God is trustworthy, but I'm a mess. I fail him all during the week and then I show up at church and I try to get better. Do you not know that when he took on Abraham and he took on you, when he took on the oath and the animals were cut, he was saying, 
Abraham can't keep this. The people of Israel can't keep this. Those who come into the church can't keep this. So I will keep this covenant for them. And even when they break covenant with me, I will take the curse on myself so that they can have the benefits. Another way to look at it is this. Jesus was treated as I deserve so that I can be treated as He deserves. And the promises of that covenant are He will be your God and He will bless you and He will bless those that bless you and He will prosper you and you will go forward into a destiny that only He can create for you, but He has to be the anchor in your soul. And what Abraham did is Abraham trusted God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he received not the wages of his life, but the gift of God. So how do I move from a place of little trust to great trust? Well, there's three things. First is this. Abraham was not faithful, but as he lived in the faithfulness of God, as he looked at God in his storms, See, what I'm, what I'm asking of you is not that you become faithful, but that you connect yourself to the faithful one. That instead of running from your pain, lean into your pain. See the God who sent the Lord Jesus to go right into death and blow the doors off death for you is the same Jesus who will lead you through your addictions, through your withdrawals, who will lead you through the areas where you're not free, the areas where you don't trust Him, and you lean into Him. You look at your circumstances through God's eyes, not look at God through your circumstances. You will become faithful because His faithfulness will rub off on you. But the second thing is this, if you're serious, these next two are absolutely necessary. The one thing that leads to Christian maturity in terms of faithfulness and trust is when you realize that your expectations are screwed up. That God wants to go deeper than what you realize your expectations are. He's promised more than you expect, not less. Let me give you an example. The scripture says, if you delight yourself in the Lord, He'll give you the desires of your heart. So I've seen people go, Lord, I, I go to worship, I pray, I fast, I give money, I listen to preachers who preach too long and the music keeps going. And <laughs> so I, you can tell I'm delighted in you by my behavior. So give me the Lexus that parks itself. Because <laughs> that's the desire of my heart. And God doesn't give it to you. Now, if you have $75,000, you can get it for yourself. But he doesn't give you that Lexus. And you're like, God, your promises aren't true. I delighted in you. Here's my desire. And what, what we don't realize is that we are always stuck, fixated on means to an end, not the end. See, the end that God wants for you is deep satisfaction. Not temporary satisfaction from things that fade and rust. And the thieves can break in and steal. What God wants is to give you that capacity in your heart to clear out all the, all the obstacles that are there for you to truly know love, to be accepted, to be safe. You see, God is most glorified, not when you're most miserable, but when you're most satisfied in Him. But you and I have to realize even our desires are contradictory. 
What I want today, I won't want tomorrow. Or what I get won't be the thing I want because I'll want something else. And so only God knows how to take you from where you are to the end that He has for you. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare, not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. I've told some of you this before, but I, I never tasted New York cheesecake in Mississippi. We had Jell-O cheesecake. When I tasted New York cheesecake, I wanted to slap my mother and say, why did you give this to me? I never had anything but Pizza Hut pizza or other forms of that, whatever that is with ketchup on it. When I ate New York pizza, I was like, they need to take pizza out of the name and just call it the hut. <laughs> I mean, when you have the real thing, you're, you're actually mad that you wasted your time on the mud pies when you could have been at the beach. And that's what the Father has for you. The last thing is this. And this is really, if you want to go deep, you have to obey Him even if it costs you. And it probably, I believe this is a prophetic word for you today. I believe something's going on right now in your life. Something will go on this week and the Father will say, will you obey me even though this costs you? There may be relationships you have to give up on. You have to say, no, that's not good for me. There may be other things where God is saying, you need to deny this and you need to do that. Wherever it is, it will cost you. And the lie will come, the same lie that Adam and Eve heard, that because he won't give you this thing, he won't give you anything. Or it's the lie that says, what I, lo what I lose through my obedience is greater than what he will put back as I obey him. See, the issue that many of us have, we don't realize that every time you're disobedient to God, it's because you do not trust him. The default setting is to trust yourself, your emotions, whatever it is, and not him. But here is the consequence of that. If you are the one you trust, then you are the only one who can reward yourself. You will become your own reward. You have now limited yourself to yourself. And you may believe that you're a better rewarder than God, but no, you'll never be a better rewarder. Listen to what Paul says. And Paul didn't have an easy life. He said, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You understand, even though you may have great expectations, you still have not imagined what God has for you. Even though you may have excellent plans for your future, you have no idea what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one who knows your end from the beginning, who's calling you into a destiny that is so appropriate and desired by you, what he has for you, you have to this day surrender. This day yield to the anchor in your soul. And when you do, then he can take you where you can never go on your own. Connected to you, but connected to something outside of this world. Let's stand together. Would you close your eyes with me and
I'm just going to invite you. I'm going to invite you into those last three things. I can't, I don't really think that there's a way that I can just argue you into the existence of God. But I think I can persuade you of what the consequences are if he's not the anchor. Then you're having to trust, you're having to depend on the opinions of others, the whims of others, or you're having to trust that you yourself are a better rewarder of yourself than God is. I think those are foolhardy. I think when you realize I'm anchored to eternity and the commitment that he's made to you, he said that even though you failed him, he would take the curse that your actions deserve. He would take the curse so you could have the benefits. Who else is going to do that for you? So I'm asking you, look to God today. Lean into your pain. Lean into the challenges and say, Lord, I'm trusting your promises. Say to him and surrender your expectations and say, Lord, you can do more than I could ask, think, or imagine. And then I really believe, it may not be for everybody, but some of you are going to face some true tension of whether or not you'll be obedient, even if it costs you. I'm asking you, be obedient, even if it costs you. Because obedience is the demonstration that trust has become your default setting. Lord, seal what you're doing in us and through us. May we be that people of this generation who, if it can be said of us, we really trusted our God. That we had sure and certain anchors in our souls. For Jesus' sake, I ask this. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.